Hi, I'm Dave Merlino. I'm Dustin Sweet, and this is the Know Their Story podcast. We talk to veterans about their time in service, returning home from war, and transitioning out of the military. Hopefully along the way, we'll inspire you to do the same with a veteran in your life. Because sometimes all it takes to make the world a better place is sitting down with a friend to know their story. Okay, we're back and officially in the double digits. Episode 10, 10, baby. 10, which is nine more than we thought we'd get to. (laughs) Of the the Know Their Story podcast, Uh, getting back into it after being on the road for a month filming uh, Apache Blues documentary. Um, Glad to be back. Glad to to be back indeed. Nice to see you, Dave, from not too far away. Yeah, not to my right or left as we drive. Exactly. Uh, Getting to the end of an officially weird summer. Apparently, the kids go back to school, but it will be no different because they're going to be home. Actually, <laughs> I just realized one thing. Dustin, why don't you talk while I actually... Oh, you want to plug your mic in? That yeah. seems like an important step of the process, guy. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, hanging out with us today, we have uh, a guy we met on the road. I'm not going to do this well because that's not my job, but here we go. No, stop. Uh, nice. <laughs> All right. Uh, joining us today, uh, our first, as we were talking about right before we turned on, our first uh, Marine at, for his whole career uh, was a Lieutenant Colonel, uh, 26 years, deployed to Iraq twice and to Afghanistan once, uh, was almost ready to retire and before 9-11 hit, and to quote him, that's when it got exciting. Please welcome Lieutenant Colonel Chris Lozano. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. All the way from St. Louis, Missouri. Woo-hoo! <laughs> well, glad, glad to be here. I just want to start by saying thank you uh, for hosting this this podcast. I, I, I think it's uh, needed and is something that's a real good way for veterans to connect. So thank you. Oh, thanks for being here, man. It was uh, really a no-brainer to see if you wanted to be one of our guests. Uh, we were driving down the road and said, hey, what do you think? you think Chris is going to want to do that? And uh, <laughs> Dave said, I don't know. He either really hates us or uh, we're good to go. And uh, <laughs> No, he only met us for an hour, so there wasn't enough time to figure out that he shouldn't do the podcast with us. No. <laughs> so I'm I'm pretty binary. I either really like you or I detest you. It's 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 oh, it's, it's really it's one of those things that I know really really quickly. Well, I'm glad to have passed that muster. At, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was a hot day there at Jim's house. Yeah, it was, and, but it uh, was enjoyable. It was enjoyable. The company made everything just cool. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, actually, I was about to take the first question, but this one's always for Dustin. Uh, do you remember what your first question is when we do these, Dustin? No, I don't remember what I'm supposed to do at all. <laughs> Chris, how did you end up in the Marines, man? <laughs> uh, I got really drunk, and uh, my girlfriend broke up with me, and I woke up in the morning with a with an English paper that said F on it, and I said, uh, I got to do something to kick my own ass. So I literally drove down to the recruiter's office and signed up that morning. 
and uh, it was it was that simple you know I was like I am going nowhere really really fast so it was just something I need to do uh, an F on your paper as an F this I'm joining the Marines that's exactly what it was I mean it, it was that line out of stripes about you know about being drunk and and stupid's no way to go through life, you know, something like that. And I just, uh, <laughs> I just decided my father had passed away, and I didn't have anybody to kick my ass, so I kicked my own ass. So, uh, well, the Marines are also pretty good at, at doing that for you too. They, they did that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I told you how I went to college at University of San Diego, and the, the Marines. We went to a Padre game. Marines on one side, of the stadium, Navy on the other. Um, yeah. one side was significantly more drunk and carousing than the other. I'll just leave it. <laughs> oh, so, um, so, uh, where, where, what was, what was your, uh, what was your entry into that life and how long did you serve for? And what, uh, give me a high overview, man. What, what sure. I, uh, I enlisted in, uh, November of 1981. I went to boot camp at MCRD San Diego. Uh, I went to Camp Pendleton after that. I served with 1st Battalion, 9th Marines. Uh, just did three years enough to to know I wanted to go back to college. I didn't want to make $500 a month for the rest of my life. And uh, it helped me realize that uh, I was smart enough to go to college. And uh, so I did that. And then in the course of getting my degree, I decided to become an officer, which is a funny story in itself. Uh, because my motivation for becoming an officer was I thought they were all really stupid and and I could make a whole lot more money being an officer. So I did, and uh, that's how I got to be an officer. Um, the Marine Corps is great because it allows you literally to be whatever it is that you are capable of becoming. And uh, so when I, uh, I got commissioned, I became an infantry officer, and then uh, from that, I got into law school. Uh, I got my law degree, uh, practiced law in the Marine Corps for about three years, got out and trans transitioned to the Marine Corps Reserve. Now, as a member of the Marine Corps Reserve, I decided I wanted to be a commander. And uh, so I transitioned. I, I retrained as a combat engineer where I spent the last 13 years of my, my military career. It's just an interesting little tidbit about the Marine Corps. You literally can, as an officer, you are qualified to do whatever you are trained to do, and they put no limits on you. So I became a combat engineer, and I, I rose to the, the, the different different uh, layers of the Marine Corps uh, within that. And, uh, you know, life just was fairly routine, and uh, I was a major in September of 2000 and one and September 7th 2001 I was visiting a friend of mine down in Atlanta and he leaned over he was an intel officer and he leaned over to me and and we were having cocktails because that's what Marines do and we're having cocktails in the backyard and uh, he just said I have a feeling something bad is going to happen hmm. and uh, and in fact you know, that was just a couple of days later that it happened. Now, at that point, I was in the reserves. I was at home. And uh, I, I pulled into the parking lot in uh, where my suburban law practice office was at. 
and uh, thinking nothing of the day and uh, just a kind of a sunny early fall afternoon. And I turned on the radio and I heard about, about uh, the first airplane flying into the tower. And I remember thinking it was like a small plane. It's like, oh, it's too bad. And then, you know, of course, as, as the moments move on, I, I realize it's much more serious. So, um, you know, I went into the office and watched the first tower fall. And, uh, you know, I had six young children at home at the time. The oldest was uh, 17, 16 at the time. And um, somebody asked me, what are you going to do? And I just said, I'm going home to pack. And uh, they, you know, why? Because that's what Marines do. We get ready to go places. And that's all I knew that I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I just knew I was going to be ready. So I drove home. I packed two sea bags. I had a packing list because that's what we, had. you know, Marines have those, those things. And I just laid it out. I packed and I set the two sea bags by the door. And that was a Tuesday. And on Thursday, I got a phone call to report down to New Orleans by Sunday night. And then I was gone for two and a half years. Wow. And um, in the course of that two and a half years, uh, first I went to New Orleans. Uh, I was at the time, I just had an administrative job. I was a division readiness officer, which is neither here nor there, but I was involved in deploying troops. And then one day they sent me to Kuwait and uh, became a, an engineer operations officer with the Army, which was comical because Marines don't get along with the army very well and uh and and then from there they made the mistake of putting me on an airplane uh to Bagra or to Kandahar Afghanistan I was my job was to take these uh or mind sniffing dogs that were not supposed to be there but we snuck them in that was my job was to sneak them in uh because they were not from an allied country and um I did that and then I just stayed and uh, they were asking me when I was coming back, and I said, there's stuff to do here. You guys aren't doing it. Army, you guys aren't set, and I took care of it, and, and I stayed there for about three months, um, and my job was to uh, oversee uh, minefield clearance in Kandahar and Bagram, and that was part of my, my job as a combat engineer, and, and the Army, was I thought, was doing a pretty poor job of that, and there was operations ongoing, and they needed somebody to kind of bring it all together, so I did that. And, so, uh, yep. When you say, and this is the old customs guy in me, just curiosity. You said you snuck the dogs in. Is that like a paperwork switcheroo or were you actually riding in the trunks of some cars? With dogs? Uh, well, we didn't ride the trucks. We flew in a C-130, but these, okay. I'll just be careful what I see here. I'll just say yeah. that they came from one theater of operations without permission going to the other theater of operations. Ah. Um, and that happened via airplane and my job was to make sure nobody asked too many questions. Oh, well then we and, better uh, shut up about it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I got, I got a bunch of stories like that. So anyway, that, that's how I got into the country with them. And then when I got there, it was just, a, there, there was just a lot going on, right? A lot of combat operations very early. This is, you know, February, 2002. And, uh, it was just, it was just not very well coordinated. So I, again, I just did what Marines do. I took charge and said, I'll take care of this. And I stayed and uh, for about three and a half months. And in that, we cleared a lot of ground um, in Bagram and Kandahar. And it allowed uh, the Army to expand operations there. 
you know, we were putting down people and equipment and um, it was very, very austere, very rugged. You know, there was no McDonald's in sight and it was, uh, it was the way I really like it. It was just, it was great. It was a, a, a wonderful uh, chance to just be doing something. But I'll tell you the strangest experience was, you know, when we landed in the middle of the night in the dark with no lights, um, you know, we dropped down into Kandahar uh, and the gate opened the door. I mean, the door to the C-130, the ramp, and they dropped in the, in the, in the loadmaster's like pointing going, get off, get off, you know, and, and we got off. And I mean, I don't think I'd put, you know, two feet in a bag on the ground when the airplane's leaving. And, uh, and uh, all of a sudden it's gone. And I see that big 101st rocket sound up there. And I'm like, Holy shit, Lozano, you're not in St. Louis anymore. <laughs> you know, you were a suburban attorney in St. Louis, and all of a sudden you're in Afghanistan? What the hell happened? You know, and uh, so that began my, my journey there. Um, once I left that area of operations, I finished that tour in, in, um, in Kuwait and then went back to New Orleans where the 4th Marine Division headquarters was at with the staff I was on. And I thought I was going to wind down and go back and uh, I'd go back home. And all of a sudden I got a call one day going, it was a class, you know, it was a uh, secure phone call. And it was the headquarters of uh, first Marine expeditionary force in Camp Pendleton, California, asking me if I would uh, be willing to join general Conway's staff for the planning of what eventually would become the invasion of Iraq. And um, of course I said, yes. And so then I was right back in Kuwait in December 2002, where we planned for the invasion of Iraq and executed the invasion of Iraq. And I uh, was there through May of, late May of uh, 2003. Came back, eventually returned to civilian life. Uh, and then was called back in 2006 and seven for the surge uh, in Anbar province. And uh, so I think that's about as quick of an overview as I can give you. <laughs> that's, that's intense, man. Yeah. You, yeah. you don't say no to a phone call like that. <laughs> no, you, you don't. It's an, it's an extreme honor to, to be asked because it was based off a of reputation, you know, and that meant a lot to me. So after the surge, um, you come in, is that when you – separated from the military or did you spend some more time? Well, so, you know, return reserve life after you've, you've, uh, you know, left active again, two and a half years of active duty. Um, you know, the, I returned back to reserve status, you know, drilling once a month, that kind of thing, periodic duty. Um, then went back for that eight months of deployment, training deployment. And, um, when I, I came back, I just did one more year and then I retired. And, uh, and that was just, you know, I was up for promotion and my wife said, not if it means getting uh, deployed again. And I said, yes, ma'am. I said, you, you have earned the right to ask me to retire. And she did. And I said, yes. So I retired in uh, March 1st, 2009. And I have happily been a civilian ever since. In terms of that, that year um, do you think it helped with the transition to just slowly be doing the one weekend a month for a year or were you kind of like i just 
like to get out. No, it, it was uh, it was definitely the right thing to do. I needed. I told her I needed the time to reflect and to make sure it's what I actually wanted to do. You know, I mean, it's the only it's the only way of life I'd known. And uh, you know, leaving that that way of life was was something I want to be certain of. So, you know, spending the, the one last year before I did that was was actually really helpful. Excellent, Dustin. What did you uh, What did you return to in terms of uh, coming out into the civilian life? Did you pick up your law practice, or uh, when did you uh, When did you pick up your guitar? Uh, well, I, I came back to ruin is what I came back to. Um, you know, financial ruin and and nothing. I mean, you know, the, the 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 very difficult reality is that a professional like myself has no protections under any program out there. Um, SBA won't give you a loan. There's there's no protection. And so I, I, I came back to a family of now seven. Uh, great story on how that happened. But, uh, um, you know, I came back and my choice was to try to rebuild a law practice from scratch or, or, or to find something else to do. And I opted to uh, get into operations consulting and eventually that led me to working in IT for 10 years and it was kind of a big um, you know redirection of my career but it was just based off necessity. Yeah it seems like a, a big change that a lot of guys go through when they when they come back once they've been uh, once they've had a situation like yours where you're deployed uh, mid-service. Um, yeah yeah I know it's definitely you know I mean if if I had deployed I mean, I had deployed before, you know, non-combat right. deployments, but, you know, when you're 18 to 21, which is 50% of the Marine Corps, um, you know, you come back and then you, you basically are starting your life. You know, for those of us who who deployed in those extended periods of, of war, um, at the end of our careers, you know, it's, uh, you know, very, it's life altering, you know, in a different way in which it, it's very disruptive to you to a career path, you know, on, on the other hand, it, you know, I wouldn't trade the experience for anything, you know, that I had. Yeah. I mean, it's not like you work for AT&T and they hold your job for you, you know? No, that's, that, that's a fact, you know, I gave, you know, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to be a whiner or a complainer, but it was just, it was itself a very difficult, transition of which there's nobody here to really help you pick up the pieces when it's over. Do you think, uh, I know we've talked to, you know, various people in the army in terms of what they're trying to do to recognize that they could do more to help transition. Um, in the 10 years since you separated, do you think the Marines are kind of recognizing that a bit more or? I'll tell you that the problem was not with what the Marine Corps did. I mean, I, I went through transition assistance training and, you know, there's, there's certainly a lot of resources. The, the, the disconnect is in American society, hmm. you know, and it, it's just, it's really abrupt. Um, you know, post-World War II, something like 12% of Americans were veterans. And today that number is around 3%. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and I was sitting at a bar after my last deployment and somebody came up and sat next to me. And after a minute, I was, you know, 
getting a little agitated and I just finally turned up. I go, okay, can I help you with something? And guy just said, well, my wife and I just, we've never met, never met a veteran before. And they just wanted to talk to me. I was like, holy shit, you know, okay. You know, and, and I think there's no lack of gratitude, but there's just a lack of understanding of, of uh, the impact it has and how, and how to relate to that. Um, you know, and there's just, you know, there's a, I, you, you talk, we, I know we're going to talk a little bit about my songwriting, but there's a, there's a line in one of my songs, which is, you know, uh, welcome home and thank you for your service. Just don't get too close. You make me kind of nervous. And, uh, you know, and then the response is, um, you know, I don't mean to be a snob. Uh, I don't need your thanks. I need a job. Mm. And uh, I've, People tune you out the minute you say you need something. You know, they want to say congratulations and thank you and slap, you know, yellow ribbons on their car, but they don't really want to, they're not really interested in being inconvenienced to help. Mm. And, and that's really where the disconnect is. Well, yeah, and then that's, you know, two things kind of popped out. One, when you're talking about World War II, that also seems to be the last war. And some of it was out of necessity as we're ramping up the production effort, yeah. but it's the last war where there's a real home front push to, to help the war effort, you know, in terms of saving yeah. the people. And, and now it's like, you know, I bet 97% of people today wake up and don't even give a thought about the fact that we've been at war for 19 years. In the oh, moment. no. Uh, I, there was a sign, there was a, I wouldn't call it a meme, but there was a, a picture that went around the Marine Corps. Uh, it was from Iraq and it was, and somebody had posted just a simple handwritten sign that said, uh, America's not at war. The Marines are at war and America's at the mall, you know, and it was just, you know, look, the reality is, is, is when you're in the, um, when you're you're in combat arms, when you're when you're in a warrior, you actually want people to feel normal. It's it's important to me that you know people uh, can can go about their daily lives. That's why we do what we do, you know. So that's not really uh, a problem. It, it's what do we do then to reintegrate? And you know, it's just in in some ways, it's just the sheer numbers. It's the sheer difference in in numbers. We have a military that's much smaller than it was in world war two and yet a population is three times as big, mm-hmm. you know, is how do people relate to that? They just don't see it. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind. You know, I actually had a family call me and I thought they're going to call me for advice because their son wanted, you know, join the military and kind of how to pick a career. And they called me and asked me, how do we talk them out of it? Wow. <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, people That's- don't, people don't see the connection. Yeah. And the, the other question, I mean, it's actually literally the the bumper out for us. The last thing we say on our bumper is, you know, thank you for your service should be the start of the conversation, not the end of it. You know, it just seems I don't yeah. need to signal out Shark Tank at all. I think it's a great show. But whenever there's a veteran, so, so reflexive, someone's just going to say, first, let me say thank you for your service. And then immediately like, just then immediately go on. Yeah. I think, and I'm not putting it down. I think it's great that they feel the need to say it, but it's so reflexive. I think people don't think about it anymore. Um, right. And and from all the veterans that we've interviewed, it runs the gamut. Some think it's just amazing and they love it, and some don't. 
want to hear it at all. And, I, and not so much like, what do you feel about it, but just how, I mean, it seems to be that, that seems to be an area where we can bridge a gap of, it's great to say it, but don't then just think that's the end of the conversation. I, yeah, look, I got asked one time to speak at a city. I, I live in a you know suburb of St. Louis, and I got asked to speak in front of the city council about veterans issues. And I went up there and I just said, you know, I look, I gave a pretty direct and hard message about, uh, you know, hot, need for veterans to have something to come home to in their community and, and the kind of support they're going to need. And they all nodded their head and then never heard from them again because it's hard work. Right. But, but here's, here's, I guess, and this isn't a, it's just really a, a, a philosophy I have, which is, service to your country. I actually think there's a, a, a slightly different problem. The kind of um, the veteran, what I call kind of veteran worship warps, can warp a veteran's view of themselves. Um, you know, we are called to service as part of our country, committed to our country. I don't, I don't think service to your country is noteworthy. It doesn't make me heroic. It makes me a good citizen. So does being people who are firefighters and teachers and and, and, you know, and work at homeless shelters, those, those people are civic minded and doing what they're called to do. I think the, the, the real shame is that we have people that don't feel a need to, to be civic minded. Um, all I want as a veteran is for people to understand that the war doesn't end when you come home. In fact, it just starts. You know, the, the greatest challenge that we have with veterans is uh, veteran health or is, is mental health. And you don't see that in war, you see it in the 30, 40, 50 years after war. That's, that's the, 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 the tax on America for wars is in those years. You know, I have a Vietnam vet friend that I coach baseball with who he's not retired, but he, um, you know, he said, he goes, his first 25 years home from, from Vietnam, he was a drunk and a mean one. And then finally, when he got help, you know, he has spent the next 30 years sober and, and trying to recover from, from those things, you know, he, he didn't, wasn't blaming anybody. He just, he needed help, you know, and that, and that's the, what I think can be, we can all do better at is, is get away from the superficial and do something uh, meaningful. And, you know, it's like when people ask you how you're doing and they don't really mean it, you know, yeah. it is, that's what it, it, it comes off as a lot of times is, you know, you say that, but you're not really willing to do anything more. Yeah. And, well, you did mention your songwriting, and yep, Dustin being the one in the band, I'm gonna let him take the lead on this because I know he wants to talk about it. Go what ahead, kind of a jerk handed you a guitar and got you addicted to music, man? <laughs> oh, so I've always been a musician. Um, oh, yeah? I am. A, I I my first hand at, uh, first time I picked up a guitar, I was uh, eight years old. And my parents had my dad was an engineer for McDonald aircraft and bought this cheap little guitar. And, um, I started plunking away at it. And then, you know, my parents enrolled me in some Mel Bay music and, you know, and I learned kind of the basics. Uh, but when I was in high school, I, you know, music just, it wasn't, it was an extra emotion for me. It's a way for me to process things. And, and it allowed my, my fingers to say things my brain couldn't say. And I just always loved it. And, uh, and then I got, did the, the drunk thing and, you know, and <laughs> joined the Marines. And, and for a long time, music was there. And I listened to a lot of music. 
but you know, I, I was in bands in my teen years and, you know, and, and, and I really flirted with the idea of wanting to be a professional musician, but then I just put it away. And then as I, my family grew, it just became less and less important and less frequent. And I mean, there were years when my guitar would sit in the corner of my room and just gather dust. And then the war years happened. Uh, it's all really complicated. You know, I mean, war changes everybody. It doesn't damage everybody, but changes everybody. And you come into it, you know, you exit it with what you came into it. And then however, further changes you. So if you're dealing with depression or mental illness, you come out of it with that and then additional experience on top of it. Right. And, um, you know, so I'm a, uh, I've dealt with depression my entire life. You know, since I first time I, I knew what the word was, I was 14 years old. And I, the way that I dealt with it as a, as a young man was physicality. You know, first it was football and then it was the Marines and then it was playing rugby. And then it was, you know, I was always doing something physical and physicality allowed me to have a way to, to deal with, with um, uh, just the, this, you know, the ups and downs of depression. Well, then the war happened and my war experiences were, you know, difficult. And for reasons that are very, very complicated, you know, some of it's, you know, pure experience, the experience of seeing death or seeing somebody wounded uh, or being in danger and, and, and seeing your, your, your life nearly come to an end. Uh, all those are traumatic, but also so is separation and heightened awareness and loss and regret and 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 moral injury and you know all the things that just pile on top of you and all of a sudden you have this big furball of emotions and um so when i left as a 41 year old man i had a house full of young kids you know and um my wife got pregnant <laughs> between my first and second deployments after 9-11 and I always joke around with her. I said, I was saving up more than money, you know, and uh, she, so she got pregnant and, and then we had AJ, our son who's now a senior in high school. Um, I did all, I did those two war deployments, came home, um, did the last war deployment and came home. And not long after my oldest son, David died. He died very unexpectedly of a blood clot. And, uh, you know, I tell people, I was, Marine Corps made me a hard man. Holy shit. You know, I've, I've, I've seen death. You know, I've, 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 I have inflicted death. And this brought me to my knees. And it didn't just bring me to my knees because of it, just him dying, which was horrible as it was, but the thought that I missed his, you know, really formative time. I missed the last, you know, essentially the last four years of his life was disrupted because then in the time that I was in my last deployment, he moved to Colorado and, you know, it was just and dealing with the, the loss, dealing with the guilt uh, and, and regret um, became too much. And, you know, I, you know, my, my, every, every deployment has its stories and uh, things that are formative to you. But when I, I came back uh, my last time, you know, after again, very difficult experience in the surge in Ambar, Ramadi, and Fallujah and all that, um, 
I just, and after David died, I just, I spun into a really, really dark place. And um, one day, a friend of mine who I learned to play the guitar with in his young boys is 12 years old. He became a professional musician for many years and he called me. We used to be in a band together and he called me and he's listening to me. He just says, Chris, brother, please pick up your guitar. Just pick it up, play it. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. And I have no idea why he told me that, except he knew that it would speak to me. And uh, I, I picked it up and tuned it up and just started plunking away. And, you know, first it was pretty rough and, you know, and then um, I just kept playing and I kept playing, I kept playing. And then we started playing in his basement again. And pretty soon we had the old band together and we started gigging again. And, and then one day I just said, you know what? I had written a bunch of songs as a teenager and they were, you know, typical teenage crap, you know, but I go, I wonder if, wonder if it would help if I wrote some music. So I started just putting things down and writing and, and um, it became transformative for me. It was what single-handedly saved my life. It was what medication, six years of medication couldn't do for me. It gave a place for the pain to go and to live, not inside my head. Um, now I can visit my emotions like that. And um, I put them into my songs. Um, you know, I... I, I, I play my guitar. I get up every morning early around four thirty in the morning and I play my guitar for at least an hour. And, uh, and then I end my day playing my guitar for about an hour. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how I got in, into music. And then the course, I mean, to get back into the music and in the course of that, you know, I've developed, you know, a decent following of people. I play or I, well, I was playing out and I'm not right now, you know, but, uh, you know, just kind of got hooked into the Americana and folk groups out there and have gotten a, you know, I, I like to joke around with people that, oh, yeah, I'm, I've got a pretty good following. I usually will have at least 10 people show up. You know, it's, uh, you know, being in the folk Americana is really lonely business. You are you are doomed to have most of your shows attended by your friends who are also musicians doing the same thing, you know, but uh, it's, it, that is it. That's how I, got, how I got into music and I use it as a, a way to express not only my experiences, but to talk about experiences of others. Yeah. Um, and for those watching on YouTube, when we release this, Dustin, the, uh, the internet in Taos, New Mexico is uh, notoriously spotty. Uh, so he just sent me a text saying his whole system just crashed. So we'll see if he can pop back on. This isn't the first episode this has happened. Huh. Uh, but I, I, you know, when you're saying you're, you're playing for a bunch of other musicians, we went on the festival circuit with a short film that we've done. Actually, you know, you're talking about, th you know, the therapeutic aspect. It was a short film that I had written after my dad died. Uh, mm -hmm. Just about everything that you learn from your, from your parents that, you know, kind of informs how I'm a dad now to my daughters. Um, although I don't teach my daughters how to shave. Uh, that was, <laughs> it was my wife's. Uh, area for them but we went out on the festival circuit and the first one we went to was uh, Sedona Arizona which was an amazing festival well attended and everyone's like Dude, don't get used to this not all festivals are like this parties every night we're like oh this is great <laughs> but most of the other festivals were 
you know, like in the drama room of a high school and the whole audience was all the other filmmakers with their short right. film there. And, you know, you yeah. talk to them, but it's kind of like, this is what I drove a few hours for. I'm not sure I like this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. but, you know, music is so, so proven for its therapeutic values. I mean, one of the reasons uh, Jim Brown decided he liked us is um, my iPod playlist. You know, I plugged it in at his house and it was the playlist I'd made with my dad. So, you know, mm. it was right, right in Jim's wheelhouse of all the classic yeah. movies. So it's like, all right, you're cool. <laughs> that That is funny. Well, I'll tell you the reason I, I connected with, with uh, you two is, is just simply because I, if Jim trusted you, I could trust you with my story. And I, and I, I, you know, I, I felt that and I don't, you know, I have a lot of guys say, why don't you ever talk about your experience? And it's like, you know, it just depends on who you are and what we're and why, you know, I, I, I just had a long text exchange with a, another veteran two nights ago and we were just helping each other out that night, you know, and it's, it, I think it's good to be able to, uh, to, to connect with, with people. So whether it's through music or through words or film, you know, I, I by the way, I watched your Apache Blues uh, trailer on YouTube. It was uh, really nice. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's been an eye-opening pro I mean, you know, we've talked about it. Dustin and I have talked about it. We just had a talk with our producer about it last week of, you know, if at the end of a documentary you've made the film you thought you were going to make, you didn't do your job. You, hmm. you, you made an opinion piece. You went out and you found a bunch of things that validated what you thought, um, which, you know, wouldn't be the first time that's happened in the documentary world. But in what we originally started as was just trying to learn why the Vietnam generation is so forgotten for, for two guys born after the war. And right it became so apparent, you know, even five, six interviews in that this was more about how talking helped these guys. You know, some of them hadn't talked ever, ever. And it was tough. They were tough interviews. I mean, I've, yeah. I've done some tough interviews in my life at Customs with the team I was on, but these were hard. Yeah. But after it was done, you could just see them relax. and. And so this four-year journey of just talking with veterans and hearing their stories has, you know, really been an amazing thing. Like, I joked with Jim that I kind of forget that I'm not a Vietnam veteran because I've hung out with them for so long and listened to their ah. stories. I'll see something on the internet. Like, that's, that's crap. That's wrong. Go, no. <laughs> I used to kid, joke around with my, with my sons. I raised five sons. And I used to joke around with them. Playing Call of Duty doesn't make you a veteran. <laughs> they can make you a youtube star apparently now we mm. watch now the, you know my parents got on me for playing video games but now kids just watch other kids play video games on youtube oh, that's right. my that's my youngest son well there you go and now i've everyone's gonna be like god listen to that old man there <laughs> yeah um but one other thing you know when we talked in st louis um mm -hmm. you said something that just stuck with me for days just bothered me for not not you bothered yeah. me but we were talking about um how you had gotten a call from um one of your marines yeah. saying that he has had five 
fellow Marines commit suicide in the last three months. And I don't, this is the part that's, you know, I talked to our producer about it and I, I don't want to get into the lockdowns because then this will become a three hour episode if I start going off on those. But there is definitely like a microcosm to the lockdowns and cutting off that avenue of talking. Um, <laughs> you know, that. And I'm trying to, to phrase this in such a way that I'm not answering the question for you, but like, what can we do? I mean, the lockdowns aren't going away probably till after the election. Oops. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? Um, what can uh, we do to help, you know, our veterans and realize there is a, you know, there's a mental health aspect to these lockdowns. Oh, I, I, I think it's, uh, let me just kind of lay it out for you and, and see if this makes sense to you I, I i talked to you a little bit earlier about you know you have the issues you bring in into your your work experience and then you have the what you bring out of it and and so for most veterans when we talk about pts what we're really talking about is a, a thing that we call moral injury all right um one of the, the young men that I frequently um, am in contact with, and, and we've created our own kind of little self-help group. You know, his big thing is, I'm a piece of shit because I killed a child. How can God love me? I'm unforgivable, right? And that's just heart-wrenching to, to hear. And, and um, you know, so these are people that, sacrificed their youth they sacrificed their mental health my my nephew has tbi from two ied explosions he's never been the same and he struggles you know every day um with you know with the aftermath of, of of tbi and and so their sacrifices in defense of liberty are real they're not they're not pretend they're not uh you know, tangential, they're, they're not theoretical, they're very real, all right? And so what, what's actually going on right now is all the social upheaval is, is calling into question the legitimacy of their sacrifice in their heads. I'm not saying that, that it's real. I'm not saying that, you know, that protest is the cause of their death. What I'm saying is if you are sitting in my seat and you watched people die and then you come home and you see people questioning the legitimacy of the country that, that eats at the very core and the very fiber of, of your, your being. And you're asking, well, what the heck was all this for? Did I even do the right thing? Should I've done this? You know, and, and that's, that's what's going on is the isolation is causing, I mean, there's multiple levels, right? The isolation is itself isolating, causes problems. Social upheaval is in some ways related to the anxiety of people. And, and, um, and it's just kind of a flashpoint of perfect storm of, of things. Um, so for, for veterans, it's, it's like this. There's soft touches and there's hard touches. Soft touch uh, I send out text messages regularly as do people to me just saying, Hey, buddy check, right? Buddy check. 
That's all I'll say. I'll just say buddy check, and then I'll get a Roger thumbs up, something like that. Or it might be oh, I'm having a really bad day, you know, and then it gets us, it gets us, gets us talking. Um, not every veteran wants to talk about their experiences. You don't have to say, you know, what's going on in your head. Sometimes it's just checking and seeing how they're doing. Um, and, and, um, you know, so the isolation changes how we do that. But I think, you know, it, it, it can be done and it should be done. And it's just done in small ways, light, small touches. We don't need interventions and we don't need, you know, I mean, they're already, remember, most veterans already feel isolated as it is. They feel isolated in their experience. They feel isolated in their community, sometimes even their family. They feel isolated and abandoned by the VA. They, they, they you know, question, you know, everything that's going on right now, whether their sacrifice was, was, was even appreciated or whether it meant anything, you know. So now comes along this pandemic and isolates us. And I think that, again, just – you know, human touch, and it doesn't have to be another veteran. That's the, you know, who I connect with the most is, uh, I have a, a lady who's wonderful therapy. The therapist has helped me out tremendously. And she's just a grandma, 70-something-year-old grandma, you know, never served in the military because I connected with her. You know, why? Because I talked to plenty of veterans. I talked to lots of Marines. I know how to talk that talk, but but you want to let your guard down and you want to talk about, you know, stuff that really eats away at you. Sometimes another veteran is not the right person to talk to, mm. you know, so. Yeah, well, what you're saying, um, you know, maybe it's not real, but if the veteran, you know, perception is reality. Um, and it reminded me when we talked to uh, Dr. Clymer, who was the former head of, of uh, Walter Reed's uh, program for, for PTS, and he was saying, and in, in this respect, he was talking about the Vietnam generation, that, you know, a veteran really needs to be able to wrap themselves in the flag and say what I was doing was right. And when you take that from them and tell them it was not legitimate, like it's just incredibly corrosive, incredibly corrosive. Yeah. And, and you think you're doing, you know, look how woke I am in today's terms, but it's just so corrosive. Well, it, it's, it is, it is corrupt. And that's a great word for it. It's, you know, I'm not a political person. I'm not, I, I don't. So when I talk about wrapping my, you know, when you talk about wrapping, wrapping myself in the flag, it's, it's wrapped in the blood of my friends. Yeah. You know, and, and so uh, it means something. I don't, I'm not a flag waver. I, I'm not, I don't even consider myself really particularly, you know, patriotic and demonstratively, you know, I sometimes I remember to hang out my flag. Sometimes I forget, you know, uh, but I'm actually, a, a, you know, you know, I'm thinking about it. I get really, I get really sad more than anything. And sometimes, you know, sadness comes out in anger or in other non-productive ways, but it's just, it is, it's very, it's very sad uh, to, to see that we have bought into what I call, you know, really a false narrative of, of the illegitimacy of the United States or that we are systemically racist country, you know, uh, and we just simply blindly accept people's, um, you know, people's proclamations. And, and as such, we are, this trickle down effect is having on people is real. 
and it, and it's you know it's it's really it's tremendously upsetting but again the answer is not simply to respond by everybody waving a flag because that's bullshit too i mean that does you know honestly i don't care you want to burn a flag all you prove is you're an asshole you know it's, hey that's your american right you know that's your constitutional right to prove you're an asshole whatever good for you you know uh, i don't care you know but where i care is is when what you're seeing is what i went through and what i did and what my friends went through and did and those before us did didn't mean anything didn't matter you know we're a flawed but great country you know, and I'll, I'll take that to the grave. Yep. And I think that's one of the really, uh, I think it's one of the really powerful things I think you bring to the table as a songwriter is having yeah. that, that perspective, you know, the, um, songwriting is a tool to, to channel your emotions is, you know, I mean, pretty well documented as being an extremely powerful tool. Right. And, yeah. uh, the thing I, I that really dr- drugs me to your songs is is the is your voice your 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 connective your connective voice to those issues really really stands yeah. through in your songwriting and um, thanks you do a really good job of uh, maximizing the the wideness of your reach I think I think your your lyric choices are um, really strong man hey like your work wow. Chris good job <laughs> <laughs> hey my fan I like it I. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I think you. I think you missed that part of the conversation when we were talking about how, as a, you know, as songwriters, you got like like documentary filmmakers. Typically, the only people who come see you play are other songwriters and filmmakers. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and I accept that because you know all I care about. Um, so this is a story about about Jim Brown. Uh, Jim Brown, which uh, you know. So I know we, we you had well actually I know the extended family. Half the family says Brown and half the family says Braun. Uh, which is why they're, even though they're German, they're like Irishmen, man, these guys love, love, love to get in, love to fight. So uh, that is, but so when Jim and I, Jim and I have known each other uh, periodically over the years, we've been introduced, uh, you know, again, the, the Brown family is very big. And it wasn't until he and I sat down to talk about our war experiences and connected on that level that, you know, there's kind of that head nod. Okay. You're, you're, you're one of us. And he came, he and Kathy came to see me play one night. And for him, I just looked at him and said, I'm going to play this for you, Jim. And I played the the long way home. Mm-hmm. And he just had, he just, you know, he, he had tears in his eyes, you know, and I, and I sang it for him because I know for most people, they may not get it. But when I saw how it moved him, I knew I was doing the right thing. Uh, you know, because I was trying to give a voice to something that was real to all of us you know, which is the, the road home is never finished. You're always on some way at some level still coming home. And, uh, you know, uh, it's like I said before, that, that songwriting, that the, the words that, that, I, that I choose, I, I choose for a reason because uh, choosing the obvious, um, you know, oftentimes misses the opportunity to, to surprise people intellectually with, with the point you're trying to make. And uh, sometimes the abruptness of, of the things that I say catch people off guard. And I think in my exchange with Dustin, I, I said, you know, I, I make people itch. And I do that for a reason because I, it's, they're uncomfortable topics. You know, if you don't, you know, I'm not looking for people who like my music. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not looking to make people like my music. I'm looking for people that, that can relate to what I write. And I accept that a lot of people, you know, may not be interested in that. It's okay. No, I think that's what really draws me to it is 
uh, Dave and I are kind of the same way. Like there's, you know, this is what we're doing. And if you'd like to come along, have that, we'd love to have you. <laughs> but uh, if not, <laughs> if there's a door, you know, like, see you later. Oh, you know <laughs> what? I, I've, I've really been using good language today. Uh, usually I use much more colorful language, but I, I do have, <laughs> I do have an invitation for you to go, you know, go somewhere and uh, if you don't like it. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've had those same conversations though, because yeah. uh, the topic of the documentary is, is not, you know, easy. It's not an easy subject. And these guys really, really hung it out on what happened to them. And, you know, we, yeah. we had to talk and, and sure. edit on our first edit of like, well, I think we're just going to have to lean into this. And when we had a test screening this last fall, a lady's like, do you have to be so graphic? And I was like, yes, it's their story. Like to not be would, and it's not like, you know, graphic swearing, but they, they explain what a down helicopter scene is like and, and why, and I said yeah. it's important because how can you understand how hard it is to come home so, if you didn't understand how hard it was to be there? So, so here was my last, here was my last experience within six hours of leaving Iraq. All right. Um, we, I'd been through the surge and I had been in my job all over the, all over the, the province, um, been out on many patrols, experienced a lot, came close to death a number of times. And now we are winding down, right? We can see the airplane's picking us up in the morning and we are hooting and hollering and having a great time. And, um, you know, it's, it's, we were at Alticatum, which was a air base we we're going to be flying out of. And we had, I'd taken my last helicopter ride mercifully. And, uh, we're visiting a friend of mine. His uh, he had, had um, uh, friends who were at the surgical hospital, right there. When I say hospital, we're talking tents, right? So right. we're inside, and he's just we're just talking, and all of a sudden there's a commotion, and I'd heard the helicopter land, and I mean war is noisy. I can't even describe how loud being a war is. Uh, but I'd heard helicopter land, but it didn't mean anything to me. All of a sudden the door opens and I went from being happy and laughing and yucking it up to watching a guy who was, who the bottom half of his body was blown off and they have his, they have his intestines piled up on top of him. And he's obviously either dead or going to be dead. And then he's gone. It was just, they came, the door opened up and five feet away from me comes you know, this mangled body and, and then they're off. And then I'm back to, you know, okay, now I'm going home, you know, and, um, you know, war is like that. It's infinitely random. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what we live with. You know, we live with the randomness of, of what happened. I mean, I, I wrote a song, which you guys have not heard, um, called um, I Dodged a Bullet. And it's, you know, it's about the randomness of the randomness of war. I mean, do you mind if I tell you the story? No, please. Okay. So in um, May of 2003, we were just south of Baghdad. And we've been pushing, you know, from the invasion. I was, you know, I had survived a missile strike the first day. Uh, blew me out of my chair, knocked me out for a second, you know, got up and 
that was the start to the war. Was a, was was a silkworm missile uh, blowing me out of my chair, and uh, you know survived all that, made it all the way to Baghdad, and now one day, completely out of the blue, my 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 wife is going to have a baby, and the chief of staff uh, calls me and says, "Hey, Lazana, your wife's going to have a baby, right?" And I said, "Yeah," and he goes. Well, you need to get home. I said, well, no, sir, I'm not, we're not going to leave till July. He goes, nah, you need to get out of here. I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> we're bad. I know Southwest Airlines doesn't fly here. You know, how am I supposed to get home? He just looked at me, the Colonel, he looked at me, he goes, figure it out. So I'm like, all right, Roger that. So uh, I'm kind of excited, but not really. I mean, like, I'm not sure I'm going to do this. So I just start looking around and I have, I realize I have two choices and I have a, um, uh, I can take, there's a ground convoy that's heading south uh, from Baghdad and we'll be uh, going to an air base and I can take a C-130 from there. Um, or I could take a, uh, a helicopter, Marine Corps helicopter. And I got to tell you, as a, unless you're a Marine aviator, there's, I can't think of many Marines that like helicopters, you know, uh, and the helicopters we're all flying in were built in the sixties. And, um, yeah, they really were, you know, and so the CH-46 was, yep. you know, been around since the uh, mid-60s. And uh, and so it's like, well, I can do that. That's only two hours. But guys, you know, I, I don't know. I don't really like helicopters, and I'm going to, uh, I was, you know, I'm just going to take this ground convoy because I can do what Marines do really well, almost as good as killing is taking pictures. So I can take some pictures on my way out. And um, so I do, and then I make it to – Kuwait and then from Kuwait I make it to Camp Pendleton back home and so between Thursday and Monday I went from being in combat to being in my house in St. Louis and uh, I get there my 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 wife goes to the hospital Monday night my, my son's born Tuesday morning all right so um of course, I'm elated. I'm I'm completely confused about how I want how I was you know went from war to being in St. Louis, and it was really disoriented. But then, randomly, I'm 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 reading the news, and I see that that helicopter I was supposed to be on crashed and killed everybody. Wow. Yeah, I wish I could say I had some great insight. I just made a random choice to take some extra pictures. That's it right? Everybody else died. And so I, I keep, you know, I didn't know those. And then not only did the six Marines on board die, but another Marine died, a very heroic um, death. He, he jumped into the, he crashed into this canal right next to where we were staying. And he jumped in to try to save him and he drowned and died. And common, you know, that's such a common level of heroism that you, that you see uh, that those are stories that don't, don't get told, but you know, that, that, that is the randomness of, of war. And that's actually what a lot of us deal with. And, and, and again, I've used the term moral injury, but it's the, it's just that it's just the, all right, why did, why did I come out? Okay. And why did my friends die? You know, I had another friend, the eve of the invasion. I said, uh, Hey, see you on the other side. And we laughed and they died. He was killed two days later. You know, that's, but that's, that's the life we accepted. And, uh, and that's why the return home is so important. And, and right now, um, you know, whereas the Vietnam vets experienced a lot of disconnect in, in a very hostile world, 
which was very real. Um, the, 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 the disconnect we have is into with a lot of today's veterans. It's just the lack of not gratitude, but of, of ongoing support, uh, you know, to help them through that 30, 40, 50 years after they come back. And that's how we can be better. Yeah. I mean, like you're saying, it's, people want to do it when they realize it's, it's hard and maybe they don't well, ask me to do anything hard. <laughs> yeah. I'll do whatever you need me to do as long as it's super. Uh, easy. Let me tell you what I have been a, a member of a number. I've, I've thrown my hat in for, with a number of charities over the years and I've almost always wound up leaving them after about a year or so, because what you find out is most people are in it for the photo op and to feel good. So all they really want to do is write a check, get their picture taken with a, with somebody and go back to their way of life. Just don't bother them. Right. That's, that's the ultimate uh, guilt uh, is, is to do that. And I, I see it when really what we need is this, we need this kind of thing. Right. It's not, you can't win it at one shot. You need so many little steps. We don't need big steps, right? We got, we have big things out there, but, you know, what, what helps a guy like uh, like that, that young man I was telling you about is just having periodic, regular, small contact to feel human. And, um, you know, and that, that's, the, that's the difficulty of, of, of what we face. It's just a lifelong journey. We're like, you know, where does it end? Yep. You know. Well. To be fair, if you know anyone who just wants to write a check to donate to the movie and get a picture with us and then leave, we're yeah. happy to help them. Uh-huh. Hey, I sold you a song for a dollar. You should. Yeah. You should. It's a great deal. I'll take yeah. as many of those you want to send our way. Well, <laughs> what? Well, I, I, yeah. Well, I certainly have other other songs, but uh, uh, I'm excited to you know to be part of that and help out. Yeah, we're excited to have have your song. Well, thank you, brother. Thank you. Yeah. We're excited. To see the movie ends Dave, up. Dave, we've reached the thank you, thank you part of the interview. I know. Thank you, Dustin. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've had many talks how we have to get better at, uh, at accepting compliments. Um, I guess they come so rarely to us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I think, you know, normally here I would ask what kind of advice you'd maybe have for mm. people reaching out to veterans, but I think we've, we've talked about that really well. Um, you know, and, and I know that Jim has just been so happy to, to be able to talk with you. Um, yeah. You know, just to be able to sit down and talk. And that is kind of one of the focuses that we found is, these Vietnam veterans have so much experience, 50 years of experience transitioning. And right. you know, obviously, you know, the mountains of Afghanistan and the cities is different than the triple canopy jungle of, of yeah. Vietnam, but we can't encourage enough for, you know, people just reach out and share experiences and, you know, like we're not veterans and, and you know, people have talked to us. So if you're not a veteran, don't be scared about it. I'll, no. I'll be honest. Most of what we've done is listen and anyone can do that. <laughs> well, you don't have to be a veteran to do that. So look, it, it, it's a, it's an interesting line that, that, that we walk. Veterans don't want pity. 
They don't. Um, uh, they don't necessarily want recognition or adulation. They, 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 they want people simply to understand that if on one particular day you're an extra dick or you are drink too much or you get yourself in trouble, there maybe there's a reason behind it, right? You know, war is an oddly comfortable place to be. Um, I miss it. You know, I miss being there. It's comfortable to me. I would go back there now if I could. Um, and it sometimes it's hard to say that. My wife doesn't understand it. Well, it's because it's life at its rawest and purest and, and the brotherhood and sisterhood that you get and the fraternity that you have in common purpose is unmatched in anything you will ever experience. And for me, in those years of financial and career struggle, uh, which were very real, um, you know, was just the thought are my best years behind me that I already do everything that I should, I was supposed to do. Am I just supposed to coast now? You know, is that it? You know, was that the best I had? And it took me for a long time to realize that there was another gear. I just had to go find it, you know, and it's just surviving to get to that day. So you guys, you know, this is, this is the way you get there. Yeah, RB, we were talking to RB Alexander two years ago and he talked about, uh, you know, not being that 20 year old, and uh, and now he was a, like recognizing that he was a different part of his life. Yeah. And I think, I think as men, we really, to start off with, really have a hard time recognizing that part of our lives. You know, you hit your 30s and you're like, um, I'm still totally invincible. We'll just go do this. Now I have a little more experience. Yeah. Hey, you, every dude under 45 is going to have that day where they're like, uh, maybe I won't go off this jump. And, and, and that sticks oh. out. I mean, for me, it stuck out. I remember looking at the first, the first double I decided I wasn't going to jump over and, and thinking, wow, I'm getting old. <laughs> and, and I'm turning into a different Wise. Guy. Wiser. Yeah, well, wise. We have, we have all sorts of ways of talking about it, man. However you want to talk about it. But recognizing yeah. that, that, uh, that you're a changed individual and that time has gone by and, uh, and that, you know, um, yeah. your life still serves a larger purpose. Well, so here's here's a here's a thought I'll leave you with from a veteran standpoint. Uh, a, a veteran is not a superhuman, and they're not even again particularly noteworthy or or or, or somehow better. That's actually part of the, the issue is is we need to treat them as as fellow citizens. But they have a lot to teach, and and so involving them and in, in, you know within the veteran community. Uh, I, that's one of the reasons why I stay so connected to, to young veterans is to pass on those lessons, not just to, you know, active duty guys. I mean, it's really just to talk to guys who are 10, 20, 30 years behind, you know, and, and the guys in front of you and, and just kind of pass on that shared lineage, um, you know, that, that, that comes with that, that experience is it's a really awesome and, and amazing fraternity of, of, of people. And, um, not every, not all of them are good, but they're, they all have something to say and, and um, you know, is to encourage them to, to give back. And that is a really important part to healing and getting better is to, is to know that you, because when you give back, you feel worth something. You feel like you have something to give. Very true. Very true. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I always kind of fall back something uh, Matthew McConaughey told me 
you know, when I watched his YouTube video. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it was a commencement speech, and you know, it, it was very true. Of you know, he once he stops chasing success and worrying about whether or not this movie is going to be the best and whether or not right. he's going to be the box office because. You know, when you chase success, once you achieve success, you look for the next success and you can't, you know, you're always, mm. always chasing. And he decided to chase joy of the fact that, oh my God, I'm making a movie and this is pretty cool. Um, and, and that I think translates to every area of life of not worrying about, you know, did I, have I topped out? Am I going to make it just, you know, wake up every day? I've got two great daughters who Dustin and I will admit are now better athletes than I am. Um, <laughs> how old are they they are 13 i got twin girls okay top 20 cross-country runners in fact my daughter asked me a couple of years ago when you do a cross-country course the meets you know that's a staggered start fourth grade boys fourth right. grade girls you know and there's 20 minutes between each and then the girls run 20 minutes fifth graders run and so you know last year my daughters finished number 10 and number 17 in the city and wow. McKinney, who finished number 10, asked me, she's like, well, where would you have finished? And I was like, if I started with you guys, with the with the seventh grade girls? She's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, easy, easy top 10. She's like, really? I'm like, yeah, but with the eighth graders. Like, <laughs> <laughs> if I started with you, I'd be finishing in the top 10 with the eighth graders who started 40 minutes later. <laughs> oh, that is great. That's uh, funny. But yeah, no, um, God, thank you so much for joining yeah. us today. This is Chris, hey, can we plug you somewhere? You got do, do you got somewhere people can listen to your music? Uh well, I I sort of do. I do have a SoundCloud page. It's it's mostly demo stuff. So what what's going on right now is I was in the middle of of producing my uh what it will be a two CD set called War and Peace. And then the pandemic uh hit and we were about seven songs into it. So it's on a bit of a hiatus and uh, it will be uh, again, one, you know, very different two CDs. Uh, you can't go to SoundCloud, Chris Lozano uh, on SoundCloud. You can hear some of those songs. Again, they're not um, production quality. They're things I did on my Spire recording device in my house. And, uh, but that's just for a place to put them. And that's it right now. Well, that's great. That's, yeah. yeah, I hope to see a huge in traffic. <laughs> well, I well, we'll see. You know, I'm I'm uh, I've I've uh, managed to make it on the radio uh, a few times. Uh, you know, and I, I've got a uh, I have two songs on a compilation CD that that uh, I did not release. It was released as part of a another project. But I'm you know I'm hoping that's yeah. You're right. You can't chase success. Yeah. You know, if it comes, it comes, and if not, whatever. I've left something for my kids to 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 play at my funeral. <laughs> yeah i uh the, the the phrase then the pandemic hit is a common refrain for a lot of people well, yeah unfortunately it, it's true because when you when you have a four-piece band and there's no place to put four people um can't even rehearse you know that that really crimps things now i have thought about just going completely acoustic and and play, you know, kind of in the, you know, don't want to compare myself to Bruce Springsteen, but to kind of do the Nebraska thing and just play the guitar. So I, I may wind up doing that. This goes on too much longer. Yeah. And then you can re-release when you get everyone back together. <laughs> I can do like the Eagles make my second album, the greatest hits. That's right. <laughs> so far. 
<laughs> so far, yeah. yeah. All right, Dustin, you had a little more chance to practice our sign out. So I'm not good at it, though. Well, you know, you're, you're, right, if you're watching us on uh, Facebook. It's going to say that we're uh, going to be right back, but we're not. We're going to be finished. Oh, oh, yeah? Is that what we're doing, Chris? Yeah, I just took a picture. I did it with my wife, though. I took a picture of the screen. Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, if you're watching this on Facebook, we're going we're gonna to step out, and we'll be done. Facebook will tell you we'll be right back, but that's a big, fat lie. We're gone. Uh, if you like what you heard here today and you want to um, hear more, uh, Check us out on uh, was it Apple Music and uh, Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever your favorite podcasts are played. Is that how we're saying? Look over my left shoulder. <laughs> I wrote it out for you. Nice. It's backwards on my screen though. So, but no, thank you everyone for joining. Thank you, Chris, for joining us today. Uh, I'm going to hit end on the record. I got to move my mic out of the way to. Get that? Don't go anywhere, Chris. Okay. You've been listening to the Know Their Story podcast. If you made it this far, we must be doing something right. Let us know by subscribing to our channel. And think about sitting down with the veterans in your life. Because saying thank you for your service should be the beginning of the conversation, not the end.